Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted September 29, 2017, we get a preview of the new WPJ Fall issue, cover line, Constructing Family, including the issue's big question, what values from your parents' generation would you keep in a changing world? But first, some top world policy news of the week. As the president in Washington and his counterpart in Pyongyang escalated rhetorical salvos at one another, American jet bombers and fighters flew close by Korea's east coast, but drew no missile or anti-aircraft fire. Indeed, South Korean intelligence reported that the North's military had ordered local units to avoid any rash aggressive actions. President Trump ordered more sanctions against eight of the North's banks and 26 of its nationals operating in four other countries. He also issued expanded immigration restrictions to replace a controversial executive order before the U.S. Supreme Court could rule on it. The surprising addition of Chad to the banned list came despite opposition from State Department and Pentagon officials worried that it would disrupt relations with a reliable ally in the war on terror. In Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel won re-election, but with only 33% of the vote, and a stunning third-place, 13% finish for the nationalist anti-immigrant Alternative for Germany party, which could push all mainstream politics further to the right. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this... American Disco Darlings, Sister Sledge, provide theme music for the new fall issue of World Policy Journal, cover line Constructing Family, on the policies and politics of family life, though some of the reports spotlight ulterior motives behind enshrining traditional family values. To preview the issue, I talked the other day with new WPJ Managing Editor Laurel Jarambek. Laurel, welcome to World Policy On Air. Thanks so much for having me, David. The most positive role for family values, especially a mother's role, seems to come from Belgium. Uh, Tell us about uh, Saliha Ben Ali, what happened to her son and the group she now runs, Atelier des Mamans, Workshops for Mothers. Saliha Ben Ali was interviewed by the journalist Lisa Debode. Ben Ali's son was recruited by a terrorist organization in 2013 in Brussels, Belgium, where he lived with his family and he was killed in Syria just a few months later. Uh, He was 19 years old at the time. Uh, And so after dealing with the aftermath of that uh, traumatic experience, Ben Ali and her family became activists, and she now runs workshops for mothers in Brussels and increasingly around the world. Uh, She reflects back on her time uh, shortly after her her son's death and uh, while he was radicalizing. She says, we had questions without answers. Uh, And so now her goal is to help other mothers and other families who are in similar situations to the one that she found herself in to try to understand uh, the process of radicalization and identify warning signs of what's what's going on before 
uh, tragedy strikes the way it did with her family. And so she talks about how long it took for politicians to pay attention to this problem and how prisons in Belgium uh, kind of foster the radicalization of young people. And she says, the media is guilty of covering these stories as if the entire family were complicit or failing. So she talks about how her older son, for instance, is now having trouble landing a job just because of the association with his brother. And so in these workshops, she and uh, her family members who are participating as well are trying to create spaces where uh, mothers in particular and parents in general feel comfortable with sharing their stories and helping each other to deal with uh, similar situations like this where the, the countries in which they live, the, the systems are failing young people and providing openings for these uh, terrorist groups to, to come in and radicalize these young men primarily. Have the mothers come up with any uh, routines or policies or practices that uh, can help counter uh, the lure of radicalization? Primarily, they're trying to help each other identify when these situations arise. So part of the problem is that uh, women, mothers, and families feel isolated and don't really understand what's going on when they see these these signs of, say, like a young teenage son withdrawing from activities he might used to enjoy or uh, sort of changing behavior. And so these workshops are meant to help each other identify those situations and share each other's stories in a situation that can make so many people feel isolated and, and feel as though they can't go to authorities or go to other members of their community for, feel of, for fear of being ostracized. A somewhat opposite dynamic emerges in an article about the Pakistani Taliban's first women's magazine, whose message seems to contradict the Taliban's initial uh, conservative traditional orientation. Tell us more about that. Rafia Zakaria writes a piece called Terror and the Family, How Jihadi Groups Are Redefining the Role of Women. And as you say, uh, it's about a new magazine for women that was just launched by the Pakistani Taliban. And the central feature of this new magazine, in its very first issue, was the story of a young woman who leaves her family for Khorasan, which is how the Taliban refer to Afghanistan. And this young woman is well-educated. She went to medical school. But after spending time in the West, she feels disillusioned and tries to seek a more spiritual path. And one of the key elements of this story that Zakaria points out is that this young woman ignores her father's pleas that she stay. Uh, she's disobedient, um, and she holds fast to her religious beliefs and sort of escapes the traditional role within the family. Um, Zakaria describes this as revolutionary. She writes, it signifies how notions of femininity, domesticity, and family are being transformed by the efforts of jihadi groups to vie for female recruits. So following in the path of the Islamic State, which also has been fairly successful in getting women to join, the Pakistani Taliban is also trying to draw in more female recruits, and, and in doing so, they're emphasizing how joining a terrorist organization can help these women escape from the humdrum nature of middle-class life or kind of follow in the footsteps of these fabled, strong, independent Muslim figures and sort of distorting those ideas and trying to uh, get these young women to really disobey their families who are, in, at least in the Taliban's eyes, not pious enough. Uh, and it kind of contradicts the mode of government, governance that's 
imposed by the Taliban in, in the areas it does control, which, as we know, emphasizes a far more restricted role for women. And Zakaria warns, too, how discrimination and harassment in the West in particular can make this route more attractive for some women. And she also discusses at the end of her piece uh, the potential for uh, this kind of becoming a, a cycle where more women are drawn into these groups if Western officials decide that Muslim women might be subversive in this way and kind of increase the discrimination and harassment that these women face, it could really just end up driving more women to buy into this propaganda that the Pakistani Taliban is now starting to put out there. Another dynamic is evident in neoliberal regimes that see families not as needing safety nets from society, but providing their own uh, to reduce public spending. Now, one article in the new issue talks about the Japanese prime minister's effort to amend his country's constitution along those lines. Say more about that. Chelsea Sundy Scheider writes in her article, Blood Ties, Intimate Violence in Shinzo Abe's Japan, about two new clauses being introduced by the Abe administration to Japan's constitution, which is, was established in the post-World War II era and is most well-known for being a pacifist constitution, uh, preventing Japan from building up its armed forces. But another less-known proposed constitutional change would redefine the rights of the individual within marriage. And so the new addition would add to this Article 24, the clause, family should be respected as the national and basic unit of society. Family members must help each other. And so it's really putting down in the letter of the law uh, the role of individuals as opposed to the role of the family. So it might restrict an individual's choices in deciding on a partner and would emphasize family decision-making over individual decision-making. But the real danger, as Chatter writes, is where in cases of intimate violence, when women might be suffering abuse at the hands of a partner and are already under pressure from their family and from society to resolve these problems within the marriage, a law like this would only further enshrine the mode of thinking that prevents them from seeking help elsewhere and emphasizes resolving matters within the family, which, as we know, doesn't always work. Even before such a constitutional amendment, uh, the author uh, considers Japan's tradition of kizuna, the bonds between people, uh, that emerged as such a buzzword after 2011's devastating earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown there. And she finds a dark underside, especially for women. So she writes about how in the wake of the uh, tsunami and earthquake nuclear meltdown, uh, all these different actors, both like celebrities and government agencies, were calling for national unity, but also calling upon people to help each other. And so that can come in the form of both like, neighbors helping neighbors, but also within the family. That means that family members were put together in like, shelters or temporary housing, which, similar to the, the problems that might arise from the proposed change to the Constitution, that ended up putting women who had suffered abuse in these temporary housing units with an abusive husband because on paper they were part of the same family. And so she writes, there are cases when Kazuna kills, when the bond that links families become bondage. So in Japan, when women are going to like, the police or the authorities, she writes, uh, these, these figures often will 
encourage women to resolve issues with their husbands directly rather than encouraging them to leave the dangerous situations they find themselves in. And this already can be, can be deadly, really. Um, she writes that on average, a husband kills his wife every four days in Japan. And so situations where the nation and the society is really pushing people to come together and pushing the family as the central unit can make it even more difficult for women who are in these situations to find help. I guess that, that's one of the many way, many uh, items in her catalog of the ways in which misogyny is built into Japan's bureaucracies. Yes. Yes, she brings up a few other examples as well, one of which is the designation of a household master, how it translates to English, uh, where one adult per household takes care of all the administrative matters for the household. And in the law, this can be any adult, but in practice, it's almost always men, except in the cases of uh, a divorced woman who is the head of her household. And in her own experience, Scheider discusses how local authorities seemed kind of thrown off balance when she tried to register as her family's household master. It's just so uncommon. And so this can also provide challenges for women who are trying to seek escape from abusive situations if they are not the ones in charge of the family's paperwork. Responsible paternity legislation in Latin America also enshrines family values. Explains how it does that and the odd coalition behind it. These responsible paternity laws, which are in existence in countries such as Costa Rica, Panama, Guatemala, and Honduras, and are under debate in Mexico and the Dominican Republic, these do make it easier for women to identify the fathers of their children and to hold those fathers responsible for child support. Uh, and this is in an article by Nara Milanich titled Daddy Issues, Responsible Paternity as Public Policy in Latin America. And so Milanich discusses how the neoliberal economic policies that were introduced in the 1990s led to a decline of formal jobs, rising unemployment among men, and so there was in turn a rise of female-headed households and declining marriage rates. So these sorts of family structures are pretty common in Chile, Nicaragua, Paraguay, and Peru, more than 70% of children are born to unmarried mothers. So these responsible paternity laws apply to quite a large segment of the population. But she also writes that these policies place the burden of solving problems related to poverty and financial assistance on fathers rather than on the state. And so not only are feminists and child rights activists supporting these laws, sort of because they represent a change from policies that used to discriminate against unmarried mothers, but they're also supported by social and religious conservatives because they encourage heteronormative family structures. But she says there's one affected group notably suspicious of these laws and their impact. Yes. Uh, as she writes, quote, certain voices are conspicuously absent from this chorus, those of poor and working class mothers and fathers. So she writes about, for example, officials who visit poor neighborhoods to promote the policies and instead of wanting to talk about ways to identify the fathers of their children, residents bring up issues like housing and crime and pr police brutality, underfunded schools. And so responsible paternity laws are framed as this quick solution to society's problems when in fact there are a whole host of other problems that the state fails to adequately address. The New Issues Photographic Portfolio section also has a family orientation. A Saudi wedding photographer investigating how the marriages she documented worked out or didn't, including her own. 
Uh, what are the main themes that come through? So this portfolio is by Tasneem Al-Sultan, who, as you say, is a wedding photographer who ended up being interested in finding out what happened to the marriages after she photographed these couples on their big day. And so she, over the course of her, this project, has photographed and spoken with uh, women and couples in a, a wide variety of situations. So some of the themes that come through in the photographs that we featured in this issue in particular uh, talk about the restrictions on women in Saudi Arabia, such as a young girl who approached Al-Sultan while she was taking photos and told her how her brother could swim at this beach that she was at with her family, but she could not. Or another young woman whose father bought her a horse when she had asked him for a car because women can't drive in Saudi Arabia. But she also tries to emphasize the humor that a lot of these women have about some of these restrictions and kind of the creative ways that they try to go about their daily lives despite these, these restrictions on their ability to, to do certain things. Uh, so one woman who scuba dives says, we can't drive, but we can dive. <laughs> and in addition to that, uh, also Tan documents the different challenges facing divorced women, such as the need to have a male guardian under the law. So she talks with one woman who works as a dentist and whose stepbrother is currently serving as her guardian as she waits for her son to turn 16, uh, the age at which he would be able to become her, her legal guardian. Um, another woman only sees her daughter twice a month since she got divorced because she doesn't have uh, the rights to, to claim the child after getting divorced. But on a more lighthearted note, uh, she also documents some women who find happiness or at least peace after getting divorced. Like she talks to one couple. Both of them had been divorced before, and they ended up getting married after meeting over Twitter. Uh, and she talks to women who decide not to get married at all, too. Um, there's one wedding planner featured in this portfolio who owns her own ballroom and has 70 male employees working for her and has decided to stay single. Another woman called off her wedding at the last minute. So she covers a pretty wide range of relationships in Saudi Arabia, and it's a, a fascinating look at the different family di dynamics in a country where it's tough to get this sort of inside look. Does it suggest that the restrictions on women uh, lead more to uh, divorce or more to uh, stable marriages or more to unhappy but stable marriages? It's hard to say. I mean, there's a couple of like, anecdotal stories in there where, say, a woman mentions all of her friends and relatives getting divorces. Um, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily tied to uh, restrictions on women or if that's just kind of a regular thing that we recognize in countries like the United States and see as normal the divorce rate, but maybe wouldn't think that a more religiously conservative country like Saudi Arabia would have similar interpersonal relationships. There's also quite an array of articles outside the main theme, including two about the international lottery industry. What are the principal findings? This lottery investigation is a global investigation, uh, and World Policy Journal was lucky to be one of many publications who are covering this. Uh, so we have an introduction to the series written by Jeff Kelly Lowenstein and Raymond Joseph, where they discuss the scope of this investigation, which covers countries from the United States to South Africa. Uh, there are 
eight massive global corporations that dominate the global lottery industry. And in different countries, they're implicated in bribery, tax avoidance, fraud. And so starting in this issue with a, an article by Khadija Sharif based out of South Africa, um, this investigation covering multiple continents is exploring the different activities that these in corporations have been involved in. And so Sharif and her piece, uh, which is t- titled Jackpot Tax Avoidance, How One Lottery Company Hides Its Billions, she discusses the contrast in the behavior of these corporations with the people who are actually buying the lottery tickets. So in South Africa, most lottery players are poor and spend small amounts of their earnings on their, quote, one shot at a free ride. But meanwhile, the company, this massive international corporation that operates South Africa's lottery has engaged in corporate inversion and other tactics to avoid hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes. Those are taxes that countries like South Africa are missing out on. So this is only the beginning of an ongoing investigation and more pieces uh, from this investigation are going to be published as they're uncovered. So readers should, in addition to checking out the ones in the fall issue of World Policy Journal, be looking to other uh, media outlets in the United States and across the world for uh, more of the findings as they're released. Death by Deportation uh, is yet another provocative title, not referring to Donald Trump's tough stand on illegal immigrants. Say more about that one. So this piece by Katya Singles titled Death by Deportation, Repatriating the Mentally Ill to Cambodia. And so she writes about the thousands of legal permanent residents who suffer from mental illnesses, who have been deported from the United States in the past two decades. And these are people deported to uh, a whole wide range of countries. And in her piece in particular, she focuses on those who have been deported to Cambodia. Many of these people fled as young children with their families during the Khmer Rouge era and were granted refugee status in the United States. Uh, But then under a 2002 agreement between the United States and Cambodia. Cambodian nationals can be deported from the U.S. if they break a U.S. law. And so these aren't necessarily felony crimes even. They, they can be as minor as shoplifting. And so she writes about how there are these people who have been sent to Cambodia from the United States and coming to the U.S. as children, they have little to no knowledge of Cambodia, only speak English fluently, Uh, and so have trouble adjusting, and this is compounded with uh, mental illness, which many of them suffer, she she writes, given the links among crime, trauma, and mental illness, a disproportionate share of people facing deportation on criminal charges may suffer from mental health problems. So sort of this cocktail of challenges from the trauma they might have gone through as young children under the Khmer Rouge then going to the United States and then ultimately being repatriated to Cambodia if they break a law in the U.S. It kind of just snowballs. And for some people, the the consequences of this are really quite catastrophic. There was one deportee in Cambodia who committed a double murder. Two committed suicide. Others have drunk themselves to death. And so this is where it becomes death by deportation, where the act of sending people back to Cambodia can really be a death sentence. Um, And there's also the challenge of Cambodia having uh, less support for people with mental illness than a country like the United States. In 2010 in Cambodia, there were 35 psychiatrists 
and 45 psychiatric nurses for the entire population, which was close to 15 million people. So a lot of these people who are deported often slip through the cracks. And of course, it doesn't help that U.S. officials often don't send over people's medical records. And so some Cambodian nationals who are deported end up with families who might not have much knowledge of their uh, long-lost relatives' different uh, mental health challenges and don't really have the resources to help them. The big question feature in this issue is what values from your parents' generation would you keep in a changing world? Two are from Mexico. How do they differ? So we had two contributors who are Mexican-American writers, Sandra Cisneros and Erica L. Sanchez. Cisneros emphasizes the sense of community and continuity with the past that she found upon moving to Mexico as an adult. And so speaking about the town in Mexico where she now lives, she says, I value the traditions that link us to the seasons, to the community, and to one another. You never feel alone. Sanchez focuses more on the family-oriented support system and the generosity that she came to recognize and admire about Mexican-American culture. And so she, but she also mentions that there was a line where the support ends. There are some topics like sex that were never discussed within the family. But she also talks about how that's changing and how these values that might persist over generations uh, come to bear in different ways. So she says, family values like generosity and aiding others will adapt with each generation for better and for worse. And there she talks about how even within her own family, um, sort of social norms have changed over the course of her lifetime. Uh, and so these values kind of change the way that they manifest. Interesting. A response from India questions the very notion of holding too fast to the past. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so we had a contributor, Devdut Pachanek, and he discusses the idea of traditional values as an idea that was brought in by the West. And so it, quote, conveys a sense of threat of barbarians at the gate seeking to destroy something precious. And so he talks about how this very idea that traditional family values are under threat is evidence of the sort of uh, cultural imperialism of the West and how these Western notions of family are kind of being imposed on other parts of the world. And so he writes that in India, actually, family structures have always been mutable uh, and the norms that a Western uh, audience might typically associate with a traditional family structure did not necessarily exist in some idealized past in India. So he emphasizes the dynamism of Hinduism and Jainism and Buddhism uh, and also the need to recognize that across the world, the family structures that are found in different, in different regions are not homogenous. And so when we talk about traditional family values, we have to talk about whose traditional family values we're bringing up and where those ideas originated. Laurel, thank you. Thanks so much, David. Laurel Jerombek is the new managing editor at World Policy Journal. She previewed contents of the new fall issue, cover line, Constructing Family. Since we spoke, the biggest news affecting families, especially mothers and daughters, was Saudi Arabia's decision to let women drive by June of next year, thereby improving its international image and bringing half its population more fully into a new economy. 
Ireland announced it would hold a referendum next year to ease or fully lift its exceptionally tough constitutional ban on abortion. By contrast, the Republican-controlled U.S. House of Representatives scheduled yet another vote on a bill to ban abortion after 20 weeks, blocked two years ago by Democratic votes in the Senate. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, you'll find articles about how immigration rules in the UK put a special price on family unification, about rape and priestly power in Nicaragua, and about the Trump effect on gay rights in Liberia. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jarombeck, Podcast producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern.